Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Got a great show for you today. Sat down with Philippe Resende, uh, the head of Flow Paragliders. Uh, I've had a lot of requests for him. He's down in Australia, down in the Sydney zone, and uh, making some pretty pretty wicked wings. Uh, the XC Racer has been uh, a fun one to watch this season. They're, they're END. They've got a uh, CCC glider coming out and another C glider coming out. Interesting to talk to a designer and somebody that starts a company in this crazy world of paragliding and uh biggest question was just why how, how can you make a how can you make a move uh in such a saturated market but they're doing it so um yeah we we get into his history and um which is super fascinating with his surf background and windsurfing background and kite surfing background so obviously a lot of parallels there he learned to fly in the Sertal, which i can't even imagine in brazil <laughs> like most people go down there after they've gotten pretty good to fly in that kind of wind. I uh, was down there about a year ago. So, um, yeah, great show there. Before we get fully into it, a couple pieces of housekeeping. Um, Hugh Miller and Ed Ewing reached out to me recently. Um, many of you have probably heard about the tragedy in Indonesia with the tsunami and the earthquake and tsunami there uh, that took out seven pilots, uh, seven of our uh, feathered friends over there. And... Um, there is a uh, fundraiser for them. So the Cloud-Based Foundation, uh, you can find the link for it on the Cloud-Based Foundation or on Cross Country's website, Cross Country Magazine website, or in the show notes for this one. I'll have it up on the website as well. Um, but they're trying to raise $60,000. I saw Ozone jumped in there with 15000 I think they're up around thirty, dollars uh, just to raise some money for their uh, families. So major tragedy. If you can help out there, uh, those, those folks would really appreciate it. Um, next, uh, I thought I'd tell a little story about today. Some people really enjoyed the story from a little while back about, uh, you know, my, my mistake of not flying with an inReach that didn't lead to anything. It was just one of those kind of like silly things, good reminder. And I had another one today. Uh, those of you who've been listening to it the last few episodes, we've been talking a lot about flow and, um, some of these concepts. Another one that I've been thinking of a lot for decades really actually uh many of you maybe have heard the story about my i used to be really into whitewater kayaking and uh was doing a lot of first descents back in the day and a lot of running a lot of really hard creeks and really steep stuff and big waterfalls and that kind of thing and uh spent a bunch of time down in mexico and guatemala one year and um i was paddling with a guy named teo berman who uh, went on to be a big red bull kayaker and uh, I think he's now retired, but he was uh, really at the top of his game for quite a while. Anyway, we were, uh, I won't go into the whole story because maybe some of you have heard it, but I, I got pinned in a waterfall and it was pretty outstandingly scary and really should have died. I was underwater for more than five minutes. And um, anyway, uh, we won't get into all of that, but before, right before that happened, um, you know, for days and days and days before it, I'd had this like really prominent voice uh in my head that was just screaming at me to stay you know it was the the whole actually the whole trip we were down there for a few months and from the day i left colorado i was living in colorado at that time um and the day i left it was just like you're not coming home from this trip they're not coming home from this trip every day and it just was it was spooky it was really scary i'd never had anything like that 
And I had just assumed at that time that it was, you know, that it was like uh, because I hadn't been paddling a lot, I'd been working really hard that summer to make money to go on this trip. And so I was kind of off my game and I wasn't really tuned in. And so I just thought it was a matter of just, you know, getting the time and getting the practice and training and, you know, and I'd get there. But right when we got into it, we were running really hard stuff and really high consequence stuff. And uh, this voice was just screaming at me. So anyway, a couple months later, I get pinned in this waterfall and uh, this all happens. And when I came out of it, you know, this voice had one final thing to say to me. I have no idea where their voice was coming from. You know, uh, I'm not a religious person. So it's, you know, uh, it was, but anyway, that's, that's what happened. And the, the voice came back and said, well, I hope from now on you're going to listen to me. Um, I haven't really had that ever since then. And of course I was, I, I kind of made a contract with that voice that said, yeah, you bet. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about the difference between, you know, we, I think we've all had it, those kind of funny feelings when you head up to launch and, you know, you might have a vision in your head that's really not so nice, maybe not finding your reserve or, you know, imagining splatting on a rock or, you know, all the various things that make us a little nervous before we take off. Um, that I think are, you know, pretty natural. I've always tried to really listen to that to try to decipher, is this, is this my gut trying to tell me something? Or is this just, you know, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other? You know, on the one side, it's just natural to kind of think some bad thoughts and, uh, hopefully you can brush them away and, you know, conquer it with good thoughts. And, you know, Hey, I've done the training. It's a good day. Uh, this is just that little stuff I need to push to the side and get after it versus, uh, you know, a proper gut feeling that is trying to, you know, get your attention. And I don't exactly, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know how to decipher between the two. Uh, maybe some of you that listen to this or are intrigued by this or have your own experience with this. I'm sure many of you have, um, reach out to me let me know what you think. But I had one today that was pretty interesting. I've um, you know, I'm training pretty hard right now for the X Alps have been for a while. And, uh, today was supposed to be a big vertical day with a couple flights down and then more vertical. And, uh, the first one up was about 3000 feet. And, um, that was all fine. When I got out of the car, I was surprised at how windy it was. It was not a very nice day, but, uh, and I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll just walk down. It's, it's not going to be flyable, but I always have my gear because I should be hiking with it anyway. And, uh, it's a hill right outside my house, one I do a million times. And on the way up, it was pretty gusty and pretty swirly and not very nice. But then as I got to the top, it was pretty, you know, it was not recreational flying by any means, but it was, you know, it seemed pretty doable. Uh, the angle wasn't great, but it was, you know, it was kind of blowing down the valley. So it was a little bit cross from where the launch is. But I thought, yeah, you know, I need to do this. It's good training. You know, I need to do as much of this kind of weird stuff as possible as long as it's safe. And uh, so I unpacked and got all harnessed up and ready to go. And uh, there was just this very kind of unsettling, this isn't, something's not right here. So I stopped and I waited for probably 15 minutes to just watch the weather and watch the clouds. And it was kind of dumping out over the pass about 20 miles up the up up the range from where I was and that looked a little concerning but it was kind of like you know you could feel it most of the time it was okay and then sometimes it was blowing really pretty hard and uh you know it wasn't it's fall here it's cold these weren't really thermal cycles these were just you know little gusts coming down the valley so you know I, I definitely knew it was going to be spicy but I thought I could just get off this ridge flat over the valley and you know uh get down real fast land at the car and go to the next 
place and do another hike. And anyway, sat there for about 15 minutes and kind of tried one more time and then put the wing back down and listen <laughs> to that gut thing again. And because this time it was a little bit louder and I was like, yeah, there's no point here. This, this just doesn't, something's wrong. Something doesn't feel right. I can, I can definitely fly in this weather, but something's not right here. And, uh, so I packed up, you know, I took it over the other side of the hill where it was kind of out of the wind more and packed up and started walking down and not 90 seconds later. So I would have totally been in the air and started blowing probably close to 50 and so in miles an hour and really swirly, uh, super dicey um probably survival but you know would have been really scary and not a lot of fun and pretty risky so yeah just interesting i think that they you know listen to your gut and uh try to learn how to decipher between those just little things that you can shake off and not have to listen to you know they're just distractions and something real because sometimes your gut knows um yeah interesting hope you find it interesting uh, let's have this talk with Philippe. It was, uh, I've had a lot of requests for him. It's pretty cool that he's grinding out some space in this very crowded space and making, making, uh, pretty interesting gliders. And uh, it was interesting to talk to him and get his take on how that all happened and how his history led into it and, uh, thoughts on where paragliding may or may not be going. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot here. I think you're going to enjoy this. So without uh, further delay, enjoy this conversation with Philippe Resende, the head man at Flow Paragliders. Philippe, uh, awesome to have you on the Mayhem, man. I'm, I'm glad we made this work. It's been uh, almost a year since I was flying with you down in Bright at the, uh, at the World Cup, and uh, some of your wings were getting a lot of attention. That was pretty exciting. And uh, I remember our, our talk very vividly. I got to tell you, I'm a little bit uh, gun-shy on the podcast. I think your, your mind works at a whole nother level. And uh, you know, we'll, so we'll get into flow, and we'll get into why, you're, uh, why you've become a paragliding designer. But I thought it was a good kind of – introduction to you and, and to the listeners so they get to know you a little bit why don't we start with a with story just uh you know your most memorable flight your most uh, you know something that uh still brings you a lot of smiles it could be maybe the scariest flight just the one that kind of first pops into your mind hi guys uh, pleasure to be here with you um i think one of the most memorable member flights um, i had was when i decided not to follow roads anymore in manila um and that was my first uh, 200k flight. Uh, there was a point in the flight where uh, I was either just not following roads anymore and, and committing to a to a, a line really deep in, into the boonies, and, and that paid off. And I was my first ever uh, 200k flight landing at sunset. Can't, yeah, that was a yeah, incredible moment, and uh, that was a uh, like a. Um, uh, what do you say, like a page uh, t- uh, turner? Because after that, um, every flight I didn't look to, to fly on uh, following roads anymore. Um, yeah, that's yeah. That made a whole different uh, open up a whole different world for me for actually flying. That's a great lesson, isn't it? I, I've never flown oh, yeah. Manila, but uh, I flew Daniloquin. Let's see, when was this? It was I was training for the 2015 race, and I came down to visit Bruce uh, in Daniloquin. I guess it was that December, so it would have been December 2014, I guess, and uh, did a couple weeks of flatlands there. And I remember um, Sebastian Benz was there, and he'd been there quite a yeah. bit. He's you know he's made a real yeah. that's almost kind of his winter spot, and and I remember. It, 
I don't remember how it came up in the conversation, but he was like, you want, you want to know the trick for flying down here? You can't even think about the roads. You got to, yeah, got to fly like, the sky, yeah. which exactly. is super committing. I don't know what Manila's like, but down there in, in, in Danilic, which I'm, which I'm sure you've flown, it's like, you know, sometimes the skies line up pretty well with the roads, but when they don't, that that's some pretty serious terrain when it comes to the heat. Yeah, you know, I mean, there are yeah. No Manila, trees out Manila there. can be yeah, it can be similar. If you get the easterly flows when you fly further west, yeah, there's a there's a there's a spot there that you can either just go following the roads towards Murray, or you just go keep on going west, and it's big, it's really big farms and just. Not many roads, you know, and if you land early, it's just a big walkout because, yeah. And, <laughs> and that walking in <laughs> that, that it, I, I guess Manila is also pretty hot, but it, and down in Tenilquin, I mean, that could be kind of life-threatening, I thought. I mean, if you landed in the middle of the day and you had to walk for hours – I mean, the, the better call would be to try to find something that, but it, I mean, it was, you know, some kind of tree and just wait till night and then walk. But, uh, it was, you know, every once in a while I come across these like, you know, dried out watering holes and there'd be like 20 dead kangaroo. I was like, man, these, yeah, these, yeah. these guys are yeah. built for this. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, yeah. that, that's a perfect tie before we started recording. You were saying, I didn't know that you, I mean, I knew you grew up in Brazil, but, um, um, I didn't know that you learned to fly in the Sertau. So let let's talk about that. Talk talk about Tori. Talk about how you how you got into all this absurdity. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I was born in Brazil um, and then moved to Australia 15 years ago. But uh, my 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 first flights um, I had in the most uh, challenging um, place in Brazil and one of the most challenging places in the world because. Uh, um, when I first started, uh, I started flying on the coast and, and then I realized that, um, some of the hang gliders were flying land and I was like, wow, what's, what's going on there? They can actually catch thermals and, and fly distance. And I went to check out, but, um, the main reason why all the paragliders didn't go in land was because it was too windy. Um, but I didn't care. I just went, well, I just went with them and, um, with the hangies. and then I came a with the hangies, yeah. Um, I actually flew hangies for two years uh, and then had, had a big crash and um, became a bit intimidated by hang gliders. Uh, and I always felt more comfortable with, with, with a paraglider. Uh, so I just stuck to paragliding. Um, give, give me a year can, here and, and how old were you? Um, it was probably early, my early 20s, like 20, 21, yeah. And what year was Something that? Like. That was the um, it was after after it's been a year in the states. Uh, I was twenty one when I came back. Yeah, twenty one, twenty two. Um, so the year between nineteen ninety nine and the year two thousand. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Um, and how did you yeah, so, how did you discover how did you begin discover flying? Did you did you discover it there in Natal in Brazil on the coast or? Are you, oh, no, no, you said you yes. discovered it in San Diego. Yeah, exactly. So I've, I was living in Natal, and I just wanted to go traveling a bit. So I, I went traveling. It's It's been, uh, I think, about nine months in San Diego, and I was a really keen surfer at that time, uh, surfing most afternoons at Black's Beach and looking up to Torrey Pines and seeing all these um, paragliders flying. And, and at one moment, I was kind of – I remember like uh, just – 
mesmerizing looking just watching the paragliders fly and not catching many waves it's like oh what's going on and um <laughs> just got you know like this really strong attraction um to, to to the flying world kind of thing and that, that's the first thing i did when i went back to brazil was to uh, I, I i knew a friend who, who was a hang glider and he also uh, paraglider and he taught me how to fly because there was no schools there was no instructors in the top um and, and that's how I got uh, in touch with, with, with paragliders. And, and he knew, I think, some of the soul guys who were chasing world records. Uh, he, he told me about it, so I went there to check out um, what the, those guys were doing. And I was like, oh, wow, what, what is going on here? The guy's waking up, you know, uh, before sunlight and, and, and driving up the hill and flying this uh, 50k-hour winds. And uh, I was like, wow. <laughs> Um, those guys eventually became really good friends and, um, um, and they taught me some, um, some good lessons. And, and I did my first, uh, exit flights from, from Plateau and Tassima. Uh, remember a moment I was, I had at that time, I had a ENA glider and, and get blown over the back flying in the afternoons because I never really took off in the mornings, uh, like they, they did. Um, so I was, is that because it was just too windy, or why weren't you taking off? Yeah, it was just yeah. I was I was too windy, and it was you know it was another level. Uh, I was yeah. it was really the first like maybe first year when I because uh, they were there they were there for like a month you know yeah. um, uh, they were they were pretty hardcore in the early days so they were breaking barrier barriers um, trying to experience experiment like taking off earlier and earlier in the day. Um, but I, I I recall that the winds were super strong, and, and I was at that time flying a ENA glider. My glider just couldn't have the penetration that the, the comp gliders that they were flying um, had back then. Um, and and then the gliders they were flying was they were scary. It was super snaky, you know. Yeah, yeah you know, comp gliders, different open class gliders. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, I had that ex- experience of uh, getting blown over the back and 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 glider all over the place. Uh, so can you imagine like the rotor from Patu? No, um, I just I, I can't imagine <laughs> learning there. I mean, I I we were saying you know before we started recording, I I, I took my first trip down to the Sertao last year and cut my teeth in Tasima, which is just. God, all, that place is really tough. I have so much respect for Roth and those guys for for making that work. I think Rafael was saying they they'd put in like thirty seven days for three flights. You know, I mean, it's just such an impossible waiting game because the forecasts seem to be useless. And then, you know, your first move is that you take that little three k bench back to the cliff wall, and then you got to get forty k over that plateau, and it, and it's howling. Yeah. It's so windy, you yeah. know. And I mean, the day is not on by any means yet, and. uh um, yeah. uh, such a hard start and then uh, you know so i mean 10 days i got one really good flight out of there and and i, I felt like i was pretty lucky but but uh I, yeah. I saw a lot more good flights from patu but i i never did get to fly there but i heard it was really intense you know often kind of cross and i mean you know kind of like Kishida, like a lot of wind you know and and you yeah, gotta be on it. yeah 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 especially like early in the mornings you know when you when the cloud base is low and it's windy and then, Climbs are broken. They're really verticalizing. You're just drifting with 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 bubbles. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have a huge respect of these guys, you know, like they, they, they still go there. They're still there right now chasing world records. It's yeah. impressive. It That's is impressive. Well, that, moment, the, that memory I have, it's like from 15 years ago, Frank Brown and, and, and these guys. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> that, that wasn't my game. I was kind of, I was, I was over it pretty quick. I was like, man, I just, yeah. Dillard's one was the same way. I mean, I'm always surprised that those guys go back over and over again. Cause I mean, it's just, you know, you're sitting in the toe paddock and it's so hot and the flies yeah. and, and then, you know, exactly. if you, if you, if you pull one off, it's fantastic, but then you've got this insanely long drive home. And I mean, I, I just, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't it's know. Like, I like mountains. <laughs> it's like, it's like running a marathon, right? It yeah. is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> There's all the preparation behind it and all that. Yeah, it really is, and it's really just about it. It really is about the patience game, isn't it? I mean, it's I, yeah. you know, it, yeah. obviously those guys have a, a lot of talent, and you know, there's talents involved, but it really seems like it's just hooking into the right day and and yeah. uh, you know, getting off the hill at the right time and making it work. And, and you know, they've they've proven that that team flying they're doing is amazing. We we got yeah. we were lucky to fly with Donizetti this summer in Chelan and stuff. And he man, he is a good pilot. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's amazing that um, the team flying thing because I got um, uh, I don't know when Saul had a team. I was part of that team and and I flew XC with those guys and I was so impressed with the way they flew because. If one of them got a better line and, and got advantage of height, that person would spiral down and fly back to us to stay in the same level and fly as a group, as a team. And that opened up my eyes. I was like, wow, this is what team flying is all about, you know, communicating. And sometimes you're two different thermals and just like, oh, yeah, two and a half year or one and a half year. And then they, you know, they join the better thermal. And that makes flying so much more efficient and exciting because yeah. um you're not alone kind of by yourself i, I think that's Although, the key and we we haven't really figured that out here we're really trying we learned a lot from donizette this summer because he we had one day in chelan where they canceled the day and it was actually a pretty good day it was just pretty windy at launch and they made the right call it was kind of dicey but but um you know a few yeah. of us got got away and 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 uh and he he was he was quite a ways out in front of me at the start i was never able to pick him up because they were they were flying pretty fast and uh but the two guys flying with him uh mitch riley who else was with them? Matt Henze, somebody else. But they were they really learned a lot. But that's that's kind of new to us. You know, we 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 fly yeah. independently, and especially on those yeah, big yeah. days. You just you know you, you're always just like ah, and then you lose it. Yeah. You know, but they've they've proven yeah, that yeah. it's just so much more efficient. And you know, you're, you're, that's yeah. such a better way to 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 click off miles and kilometers because you're at some point in the day you're going to have a low save, and if you got three guys there doing it, you're going to get out. Yeah, you know? exactly. You're pull it and, and Donizetti has his amazing sticks and, and he's really has big balls, you know, because he's committing to sometimes some of this, uh, this long glides and flying low. And he, most of the time he pulls it off and gets a climb. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, that was the thing yeah. that really impressed me about that. That's also why I can't believe you learned there. It must be, it's intense. It's not like, it's not like you're just flying over sand. I mean, the Sertau is really serious yeah. terrain i mean and with that it much is. wind there were a lot of times where it was like man i have i really need to climb here i mean it's not it's not for the faint of heart <laughs> yeah yeah you know at that time when i got exposed to se flying i was i was a really keen surfer and i had just gone back uh came, i just had a, a year and a half off where uh 
I spent six months in Hawaii and, and I was a keen surfer looking at the podcast for, for big waves and sometimes chasing big waves and stuff. And, and there was a complete different, um, uh, like, you know, surfers, you, 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 you really in touch with nature and you challenged by the elements and, um, and it's not every surfer that's attracted by big wave surfing and, and looking for the swells. Um, and then all of a sudden I got, I got exposed to the paragliders, which are in a completely different environment. Um, they're flying, but it's almost the same kind of approach, the same kind of um, um, interaction with nature. You know, you've been t- challenged by the elements and you have sometimes this uh, magic day um, that you look at the forecast and the forecast is coming and you like, you have to be ready. You wake up early in the morning before sunlight and it's exactly the same as uh, this, what the surfers do. You know, it's just, um, in a completely different element instead of being water, you're in the air. And, and that was fascinating for me. And I just wanted to explore more and it's been, and, and now it's, it's my life and it's, yeah, I don't even surf as much as, as, as you, I used to anymore and I don't chase big swells anymore but I, I'm still always looking at the forecast for the good day to go to go XC flying you know what I mean <laughs> do you think Philippe, yeah. do you think there's much I know exactly what I mean because I spent a lot of time in, in you know the ocean and kiting and surfing and I'm always I've always been more of a surfer than a, than a kiter but but um tell me about how that's how that has maybe influenced you being a pilot you know that those years you spent windsurfing and surfing and you know kind of interacting with water because i've always had a theory that all the years i spent sailing and kiting was was really uh, really helped me understand flying but it's kind of hard to communicate i, I don't yeah you know, it's one of those things where about. i kind of feel but i don't know how to um have you ever thought about yeah. that i'm sure you have um yes i think I don't know. I, I don't know if I can explain putting words into words, but I think it's to understand that ne- like each day is different um, and to adapt to that day um, and, and be in tune with nature and, and in tune and tuning into the day. I think the more experience you get into flying, you kind of, it's naturally, it's a natural uh, uh, skill that you acquire, I guess. Um, and, and, but uh, but I think predicting a good day it's an art itself. Some some pilots are really good into looking at forecasts of different models and um, and what to do for the day and and, and that's another art itself, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To look at forecasts. But um, to fly the conditions that are there presented to you, um, it's 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 yeah yeah it's one of those things that you know. Um, I don't know if it's related, it came from surfing or not, but um, I just trying to make the most of the day. Gavin, sorry, maybe I got lost a little bit there. No, no, no. It's 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 a really yeah. it's a really tricky question because I mean, well, it's a tricky thing yeah. to even talk about, and I, I I think this is gonna you know perfectly segue down the line. I don't want to yet, but into flow and and you know uh, not only the state of flow, but your company flow. And I'm sure yeah. that you, there's some parallels there, but, um, before we yeah, get okay, there, so there's, there's, some, there's something I wanted to say. Okay. Um, yeah. So 
uh, about XC flying, I, 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 you know, I, we have a group here around Sydney that uh, the pilots that we always fly together. In the EHA, these guys, uh, we always uh, organized uh, weekends away and flew together. And I was, I was well known to um, either have have my radio off all the time or not talk as much because um, I always felt that on exit flights, especially on those mellow days where uh, the climbs are not so strong, just nice cruisy days, you know, you fly into your sunset in the middle of summer, I, I felt that I almost went into this um, uh, state of, I can't say maybe a state of flow where time is not relevant and, mm-hmm. and you're just in the groove, you're just connecting climbs after climbs after climbs and you completely immerse, immersed in this environment of flying and you just yeah, it's a strange feeling, but uh, it's like you're almost in a trance kind of uh, a, a mode. And it's a, it, and I felt that sometimes I'm on the radio talking too much, relying my position to the retrieve driver. I don't get into that mode. Mm. Um, and I really like to be in that mode sometimes, uh, just drifting with the wind and be on that uh, flow state, um, if you can say that. Um, and, and, and connecting, sometimes um, uh, I remember one year I was flying with Che, and Che, every climb, he found he found the call. He was he was on just on it, like I, yeah, on it. And at that that year, I wasn't. Um, and that happens from uh, from time to time. And I feel that I'm really switched on, and I can get I find the climbs uh, and the calls straight away. But some years I just I'm not there, um, and I can't explain why. Mm. God, I'd like to ask you more about that because I think everybody listening would like to know why. <laughs> but yeah. I think I think for for those of us who spend a lot of time flying XC, we're all just nodding our heads right now, going, "Yep, yeah." Sometimes that's like that, you know. I mean, yeah. even Kriegel, you know, I had him on the show, and and he was he was talking about that he often really has a hard time climbing. You know, he's I mean, the best pilot in the world. It's just yeah, yeah. Sometimes you have it, and you're sitting on top of everybody, and sometimes you're like, "Why can't I do this?" Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Isn't it? Sometimes you're super confident, and you know we're gonna get the next one, and you get it. And it's like that yeah. confidence that brings you, um, yeah, you pull over every, every climb. But sometimes it just doesn't work for you. So, Philippe, you know, before we started recording, you were talking about that. You know, a, a big part of your, um, you know, paragliding design came from a place that I didn't, I, I didn't really initially draw the conclusion. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't really get it. You said it came from um, your history with shaping boards so let's let's talk about that how did how did that all start and how did you get from there to paragliding okay so i grew up i grew up in natal um and since i was little i i i I surf and uh it was was, it's it's from me it's a deep deep inside of me that i always be interested to creating things designing things uh making things so uh, when I, I don't know, when I'm uh, late teens or uh, early 20s, I just started making surfboards as a hobby in, uh, in the, uh, my dad's uh, backyard. And then when I moved to Australia, I was, uh, I was I already knew how to design and how to shape boards and glass boards. So I, I got a job pretty quickly with one of the biggest Australian shapers. Uh, where, where I am here, there's a big surfboard industry. Um 
and and down the track i had a, the chance to open my own workshop uh, making flow flow surfboards which were very successful for about eight years um from there onwards uh surfboards uh became uh i was in a uh in a crossroads between uh going bigger or going somewhere else and then i decided to go somewhere else because of the fumes and the resin uh attacking me as my health so i decided to go um and go back to architecture and 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 design kites um uh, so flows of boards um no longer exist i still make boards uh for friends um i just designed them in the computer and i uh get someone to glass them um and today we just have the kites uh flow kite boarding um still we still we still a fascinating uh, company uh so it's very low key uh, we make uh one kite which is a all-terrain kite um and um yeah how did how does your how does shaping boards and you know kind of going through that whole process and i i uh hats off to you for getting out of it because the health side i know I've, I've been involved in that a little bit myself that stuff's brutal i ran boats for a long time and dealing with fiberglass is pretty toxic stuff but um yeah, yeah. how did you and, and by the way i had no idea that i always thought flow uh paragliders was like either you know chick sent me high as flow state or you know or f- you know flow like airflow through the air so that's kind of cool to to know that it actually came from from waves uh and, and from water but uh but yeah how do, how do, how do you think that kind of experience and that kind of background and shaping um lent to your understanding and of design and, and design of paragliders um yeah, I, I think it's all about fluids, uh, water, air. It's just a different density. Um, and making surfboards gave me this, this amazing opportunity to make 10 different prototypes a week. That's what I, what I was doing. I was pretty much doing custom-made boards. Um, so every every week I would make 10 different boards. Um, so I had a really deep understanding about what small changes would create in the in the water um and that uh, gave me um a visual picture what uh like a fluid a fluid for fluid dynamics really do through an airfoil or how a wing would be air, behave in the air um and and you know before i design a glider i try to visualize uh, trying to picture how it would fly how would all this little um how yeah how it will work, you know what I mean? Um, and there's there's another, um, let's say, chapter in my life where I got exposed to to the fluid dynamics a little. When I was, I used to, um, you know, in my early teenage, teenage teenage year years, I used to be a swimmer, and we used to put underwater cameras to analyze our stroke and how how we could make uh, the old water entry more efficient by analyzing in slow motion. I was struck under the water, you know, and, and, and then I felt in my own skin how those little changes would affect to make it more uh, um, efficient. I think like the, this combination of experiences I had in life led me to design, design the gliders I do today, I guess. 
you know, a little the study of architecture as well, and you know, and you know, the interaction I had with all the other professionals. Um, had some friends uh, that work in the aviation industry, some friends that work uh, with engineering. Sometimes I need to uh, work together with them. For example, uh, when I designed the X-Tracer in the section of the glider where they have five or four or five unsupported cells and I wanted to know how to place the diagonals properly so they can share the load and it, it acts the same, as, same way as, a, as in the bridge and they... Those guys gave me very uh, important insights um, how to do it properly. Huh, fascinating. So, uh, so when I yeah, so when I designed the gliders, it's uh, the main concept is it's it's me, but I, I have a lot of people behind me that help me. So when I don't understand about a topic, I I I, I search and, and and I ask for uh, proper skills, proper you know proper people to give me give me uh, knowledge I need to. Yeah, that interaction is uh, very important. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So, still uh, back then, you were so you were flying then. You were back, you were you were into flying and at that point. Yeah, I was. Okay. I was. Yeah, I was. It was uh, surfing was always my biggest passion, and flying was more like a weekend hobby. Um, oh. uh, I was flying when the conditions were good. And was the uh, was the kiting just kind of an obvious, you know, was that just an adjunct from from your years growing up windsurfing? Was it was it just like, because most you know a lot of windsurfers just crossed over into kiting because it was a natural, you know, it's, it's like the ski snowboarding thing. But, but was that what it was for you as well, or was it more of this kind of uh, because surf uh, did did surf lead lead you to kites or did windsurfing lead you to kites? Uh, it was kind of the same. I I think I started uh, surfing first, and then because in Natal it was always so windy that surfing was wasn't great, mm. uh, but uh, it was amazing for windsurfing. Okay. Um, and uh, after that trip to the, to 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 uh, Maui, where I got exposed to a lot of windsurfing uh, to the highest level, and hanging out with all the pros and uh, you know my heroes. Um, I came back even, uh, even more keener uh, uh, windsurfer, but it was during that time where a lot of people were shifting, uh, shifting from windsurfing to kitesurfing, and I and I was left alone, uh, just windsurfing by myself, <laughs> and I res I resist res resisted until there was you know no point to windsurf anymore, and so and then and then I learned to kitesurf, and and then and then the new sport again, and all the fascina fascination fascination be be began. Um, um, yeah, so when I decided to start making surfboards, um, I wanted to do something new and then I decided to just design kites, um, because my neighbor was designing kites and I was helping him to tweak, to test prototypes and were introduced these, me to the... Were these inflatables uh, or foils? Uh, all inflatable kites, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, so then I started making my own protos, um... And at the same time, playing with the um, uh, with, with 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 the software that um, design design paragliders as well. Um, I don't know if it's the time frame is a little bit confusing, but everything was happening all at the same time. At the, at, during that time, I was competing internationally in PWCs. Uh, at that time, my paragliding flying, um, I. I became a better and a better pilot and 
I was sponsored by So and was part of the So team, and I had a really good understanding about uh, competition flying, and, and I was part of uh, the team. I don't know who in direct contact with the with the So design designer, giving feedback about the uh, the Tracer series. Um, so this is kind of mid. So my, we're we're kind of mid two thousands now. Then. Yeah, right? yeah, mid two thousands. Exactly. Yeah, mid two thousands. And yeah. give give the give the listener a little background here on on what what it takes, and then and then the obvious question is why in the world would you want to get into this business? Yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, it was I was a strong. I had this strong fascination. It was um, making surfboards was easy. You know, um, it's complex. It's a complex design. It was full of curves and. Uh, but I, then I, 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 I realized that I, yeah, I was making good boards. And then the next, the next, next big challenge was design kites. And all of a sudden I was designing kites that people were happy with. Uh, but then the paragliders were something that were um, way more complex. And, and, and I was a little bit reluctant at first to, uh, embark on that journey to design paragliders, but I at the same time there was this strong fascination where uh, one of those things, you know, I just couldn't live life without even uh, without doing it. I just had to try it. Um, and my wife um, one one day uh, and she asked me like, "Oh, what do you, what do you see yourself doing?" Um, and I was like, "I didn't want to. I didn't want to say to her because." It sounded so far away, but the only thing that I could think of was to design paragliders. Mm. Um, she asked me the same question again, maybe a couple of weeks after, and then I said, "Look, like, the only thing I can see is to design paragliders." And then she looked in my eyes and she looked that "That's what you're gonna do." That during that time, I, I learned how to use this software properly and um, had a few prototypes. So I I uh, got together for a couple of the guys and we decided to. Yeah, start. Um, at first, we uh, decided to make little little mini mini wings um, to fly here on the coast uh, on strong winds, and that was a big challenge because those conditions are pretty uh, full on at times. It can be the wind can be, uh, you know, what's like flying strong winds. Uh, you need a wing that's uh, collapse resistant and uh, so we we worked a lot on the, the right tensioning and the right airfoils a lot of people ask me how i came to become a, like a paraglider designer i think you don't all of us all of a sudden becomes you have a set of skills that you can then design a paraglider i think your experiences in life that leads to than to have the experience enough to design a paraglider. I think that's what uh, happened to me because I had uh, my years of making surfboards and, and then and the exposure to design kites and then my background as an, as an architect working with all the CAD-based softwares and um, things like that. And if you want to design something, you do your research first, you learn everything about that, project before you actually start the design phase so and that what happens with me in paragliding if i want to design a new glider i do all my research i i i learn a lot i trying to learn as much as i can for that specific project for example let's say the d-class glider 
XC Racer. I did a lot of research before I could um, start the first, you know, drawing the first line. So when you this software, um, so let's just take the XC Racer as a as a as a first example. Um, you know, when you when you with the software. How much can you do there before you got to build a wing? I mean, can you can you do so much there that you can be like, okay, this thing's going to get X glide ratio and it's going to weigh this much? And I mean, I'm just clueless. You know, can you give us a, a brief broad stroke of of that? And then, what you know, what are the costs in, involved? Uh, you know, to to bring something like that to to market? Yeah. Okay. The software is basically uh, designer's pencil. It just uh, it just aids you. It's just software that helps you to design. It doesn't do any predictions. Doesn't do any simulations. Mm. It's, it's just that for you to design it. Um, uh, I think early in, in the early days of paragliding, people used to design paragliders by hand, right? Mm. Uh, now we have a 3D uh, software that you design in 3D, and it's super like a, as a per designer it makes your life it's so easy, mm. and. And the software I use, um, uh, it makes life easy because what you see is what you get. There are so all the softwares there that you have to make a few prototypes to to get what you want. So okay, when so I design, your your software is, is unique to you. you know, Ozone, Niviac, they've all got their own software or, or some of them using the same that others do. No, I think the one I use is the one that's mostly widely used right now. It's the, yeah, it's called uh, it's called Surfplane. Um, it's made by an Australian um, designer. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, this guy is incredibly smart, and uh, is this yeah, he makes the the software that's in, in industry standard now. I think most other manufacturers uh, use his software. Um, Okay. And it's and it's yeah you you pay the subscription um, per year and it's not cheap uh, so there's that's uh, that's the first cost it's the, uh, it's the you have to pay for the software mm. uh, and then you have to pay for the uh, the prototypes um, and then you have then after the prototypes you have to pay for the certification the certification can be really expensive uh, if you. Let's say uh, just just cost. Uh, if you want to design four four gliders, uh, the cost is uh, something around a hundred thousand um, dollars. Yeah, so there's a bit of investment there uh, for you to start. Um, was that a big um, part of? Did you guys kind of was it was the cart before the wheel in a sense? Did you guys did you just start? designing and then then worry about the money or did you did, were you able to convince some investors that you were the one that you know to get behind and and then you know how, how did how does that all work and you don't have to answer that but that's yeah I'm no, just I curious. Think, yeah it was yeah it was in the beginning it was just as a project it was just something fun i just i just I started alone in the beginning and then i attracted they changed it to my friends and some people more people jumped aboard but in the beginning it was just something uh, it was a challenge. I just want to do it and see if I could uh, make design paragliders. And and all of a sudden, the, the mini wings were really good. And then I made like a XC glider, like a, a NC type of glider that I, you know I had a, a few flights that were as good as any other certified wings, the same type of specifications out there. And and they were super safe. I could push really hard. And I was like, oh wow, yeah, I actually I can actually design gliders. Um, 
and the glass is actually good. So, and then that's when the idea of making something commercially, commercially, uh, uh, became, and then, then, then we started to get serious and so, okay, let's, let's do this. Uh, let's make a project. Um, and, um, it took, we didn't, it didn't brush things. We, we, we were very low key for the first three, four years, just to make sure we could have released the ENC glider much, much earlier, but, uh, I just thought that there were a few things that I wanted to learn to explore before we could go, um, uh, let's say, um, worldwide because, we were offering the gliders, uh, especially the Yachty, the mini wing, the strong winds in Australia for the first three years. And then since December last year, we decided to go, well, yeah, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's certify all these gliders that we have and, and then go global. And that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, and, and I've been doing this full time since December last year, because before it was not really, um, I had to, you know, have my day job to 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 pay for the pro, pro, uh, prototypes and and all that. But um, yeah, so it's a it's a it's a real thing now, and it's been uh, I'd say successful. We receiving a lot of feedback. The the X-Racer has been doing really well internationally in competitions, and and feedback from all the has been really good too. So we went through this period, you know, after after ozone you know kind of created the shark nose in 2009 um and you know the there was the kind of open class i don't know you want to call it debacle or whatever i mean it was just you know it was, it's been it's been a really interesting for a few years and um you know the the manufacturers that were making uh competition gliders were trimmed down to really uh you know ozone gin niviac and there's been I've heard really interesting arguments on both sides of this that on, on the one hand, you know, statistics say that, you know, you guys as companies making wings, you know, you, your focus needs to be the ENBs because that's the most wing that's, that's sold. I mean, in order, in, order, in order to make money, you want to sell lots and lots of the Bs because that's, that's the bigger market, right? But the the argument has been that, you know, for those companies that are really playing uh, serious ball at the competition and that that technology passes down through. Um, but then you've got this other argument that, yeah, well, yeah, but Skywalk and Nova and UP and they're all doing okay. And they don't, well, actually UP does now, but they didn't for a long time, you know, um, play in that kind of market because the competition end is, you know, it's very difficult or not or impossible. And I correct me if I'm not saying anything right. This is just what I hear. I don't, I'm I'm not at your end of the thing, so I don't I don't understand this this playing field nearly as well as you do. But you know, it's hard to make money at the competition end. So it's I've I've heard you know that it's on the one hand it's because you know people like Luke Armont just love playing in that you know that end of the sandbox. Um, but on the other end, it also passes down through your D's and C's and B's and A's and your school gliders. Um, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, the high end gliders, uh, it's, it's a lot of breakthroughs there in, in terms of uh, uh, technology and. Uh, yeah, it, it definitely passes down to this to the lower end class gliders. Uh, it, 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 the, the, in terms of uh, performance that you can get from those, uh, like let's say the B gliders. Um, yeah, 
it's a, there's a lot of things that we've learned from the XC racer that we now use on the other gliders. Hmm. Um, yeah, like any other company too. Uh, we're trying to, yeah. So because I think um, the XC race is the one that uh, we're trying to. It's it's all about. It's no compromise really. It's it's all about performance. Um, you know, um, yeah. And then the little things we learn from that project, we're trying to use on the other gliders as well. Um, and the way um, I I I think I have a really good eye for to see things that maybe. Um, someone that's not a designer uh can see um and uh, being a paraglider myself and and being involved in competitions i i think the desire to go and design wings is because i was i was like why they don't do that you know why they don't do this and i was trying to kind of um i was wondering why designers they don't use some solutions that i could see i could clearly see right there on my face just flying just flying looking at all the gliders um and that's that's why that's one of the main reasons why i decided to design my own gliders because i, I believe that i could do and i could use things that i could see in my own gliders um you know what i mean uh and and, and, and because i have uh, the flexibility to to, to explore the, my ideas and to put in, into practice, um, I did. You know, I have, I had, I had a really good uh, one of my really good friends uh, from, from from university. He he used to be deeply involved. I mean, he's, he he works for for Embraer, which was which one of the biggest uh, uh, airplane manufacturers in the world. I think it's the third behind Boeing and Airbus now. Um, we kind of uh, we, we back in Brazil we paraglided a lot together and I was involved and in, he's, he's, he had this little project that he designed remote control uh, airplanes and he played a lot with uh, the thickness of the airfoil of the wings and and that's what I explore a lot on my my designs I explore. Um, thickness uh, for for thickness and maybe i don't know if you can see on my designs maybe the thickness of my airfoils are slightly different from the other manufacturers um and i try to observe like uh in nature what uh soaring soaring birds uh, do when they're trying to stay airborne like if you see for example eagles they have a very very straight lineage sometimes even the the wingtips uh further forward uh, and then you, when you see paragliders they have all this uh the sweep back uh back wing tips uh, uh which you know the most yeah the, the most 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 paragliders are designed that way but uh, on the xc race are trying to explore sweep them forward uh, yeah mm-hmm. yeah so you know you align the airflow to the to the cord cold wise and have the tips uh yeah better aligned to the to the airflow and yeah so how, how like long that. does it's it a, take there's from... a, there's a ch- oh sorry go ahead. there's a challenge there because of the tensioning and everything else but um yeah how long does sorry. it take to go from from concept so you know you you guys released the xc uh racer and uh you know that it's been widely well received people enjoy it you're probably getting a ton of feedback um you know what would what when would the xc racer 2 come out typically i mean for 
and you try to speak generally, you know, like, or the next, I'm not super familiar with your full line of wings, but your next B, um, but what, what would it, what does it take from kind of concept to, uh, certified and out the door? Is that two years, three years, one year? How long does that take? Uh, it depends on the project. Let's say that uh, a year, it's a good a good time frame uh, to develop a glider. Uh, what slows things down for us a lot is the it's the waiting for new prototypes. So we waited a new prototype and we have to wait for like a, roughly a month to receive it. And, and that slows it down a lot because so, sometimes let's say we, we want to do, we get one prototype and we test like, oh no, let's make a new one. And then I have to another, wait another month and then Oh, let's make a new changes. And then that's three months gone if you wanted to have three prototypes. Um, so that's what slows us down. Um, for, for example, the XC Racer was a year and a half uh, project uh, because we just, uh, I, I just wanted to explore to make a two line and see how it would fly. And the first one was already incredible, it was flying incredibly well. Um, handling everything, performance was good. So they mean, then I started to experience few other, uh, um, with some other things that I want to just wanted to explore. And uh, for example, I I start playing with fitness, airport F four fitness. The performance was incredible, but the handling wasn't there. So there's a when you there's a compro there's sometimes there's, there's compromises you have to take and to find the right balance to have a, uh, a package, uh, that's good. Uh, if without compromises in handling or performance, um, because when you design a glider, you, for example, I could make the XC racer more performant the way it is now, but the handling wouldn't be that great. Uh, so I had to readjust, designed to make the handling fun and nice and uh, the pilot could enjoy as well you know what I mean uh, so uh, we have we are right now working on the ENC glider and the triple C glider and and those two projects uh, we are using a lot of things that we've learned from the XC racer hmm. yeah and when can we expect the the CCC the CCC um, so hopefully we have it. Uh, we have it for, for the next Australian comps in January. So we've oh, got so. two months. Okay. Yeah. So because the project already started uh, before the European summer, I had uh, one of the protos, uh, the PwC in Bulgaria, um, and I was I was flying that one uh, there, and and, and I, uh, I was I was yeah super happy with the performance. Uh, as you know, like Bulgaria can be sometimes super rough, uh, lee side, the takeoff and the thermals can be strong. Um, and the glider was super solid. I uh, could use, I could push full bar all the time. And there was a task where I finished in third. There was another task I finished in sixth over on the PwC. So I thought, yeah, the performance is good. Performance is, I think the, uh, the climbability and, and the glide at full speed is really good, really good. How do you approach, um, how do you approach selling gliders? You know, as you know, tip, typically folks like yourself that are really good at design engineering, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to cover the whole spectrum. I don't know, you know, how big your team is there now, but, um, how do you, 
because there's very different philosophies on that. You know, do you try to get them in the hands of the best pilots? Do you have a kind of a, do you have a team? Is there a flow team now? Is there, um, how are, how are you approaching selling? And, and I'm gonna, I'd like to tie that in too with, you know, what's it like uh, being an Australian company? Cause it's an expensive country. Um, you know, are you, are you yeah. manufacturing there? I'm assuming you're mag- manufacturing over in China or Vietnam or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, I, I've learned a lot from making boards and and making design and making kites. That if you have something good, the pr- the product will sell itself. Um, people will will naturally be drawn to your product if they are good. So, um, that's why I decided. I, I told the guys, hey, let's take it easy on these. Let's make gliders. They are awesome. Um, and people will come to us. It's not us knocking on people's doors. Say, hey, can we have this gliders? We're going to sell it for us. Um, and that's what exactly what happened. Uh, we made gliders. They were good. And um, so people came to us. And that's the best scenario. Um, and that's and this This is our mojo. This is what we wanted to do. Uh, we want to make gliders that are good. And people will fly, test it, and it's like, oh, wow. And tell their friends and, you know, uh, things like that. Because, yeah, I had um, with the kites, uh, you know, like um, uh, I, I don't know too many people in the industry. And uh, we sell the kites, but we don't sell uh, the volumes I always, always, I always, I always hoped for. Because, uh, uh, you know, just the context we don't have. But, um yeah, so the, the all the the flow paragliders are all designed and tested in Australia. We have a team of pilots here in Sydney, um, and we have a little office. Uh, we have someone that works in the office with us, um, and we have uh, a worker full time. Uh, we use a, a factory in Thailand, and we have a, a someone there only in charge of our production in Thailand that can uh, supervise. And then can the stock is ours. It's, it's held in Thailand, so that person takes care of shipping and, and all that as well. Um, and it makes it easy for uh, the logistics side of things. Uh, so we don't need to hold any stock in Australia; just uh, uh, save with shipping. Um, and now these days we have uh, dealers in most countries in the world. Um, I think the the XC Racer created a lot of attention. Uh, to our to our gliders, uh, but the the A glider, the B glider, and the tandem, uh, and the the mini wing, uh, uh, also having uh, be getting lots of uh, lots of positive feedback from from pilots, from dealers, from schools. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and for the future, we we have the C glider, the triple C glider, and uh, also. Um, a high uh, B glider that we uh, should uh, should should release uh, early next season. And are you are you the the main designer for the whole lineup? Yeah, okay. I, I am. Yeah, yeah, I am the guy who um, designs all the gliders. Uh, but uh, we we work with with other pilots. And what I like the most is to give. Um, I'm I'm the first person to. To fly, to fly the, the the prototypes, tweak it, and then I give to pilots. That's what I like the most. I give to the, our test pilots with fly the gliders and and, and and tweak and help me tweaking it. And um, but I like to give to normal normal pilots. You know the yeah. pilots who 
supposed to fly these gliders. And some people, they like, oh, but I don't know how to give feedback. So it doesn't matter. Just fly. Just, just see what you think. Some people, they say sometimes just small little things. And that, that's a super valuable feedback mm-hmm. to us. Um, and we're trying to listen, trying to listen to the pilots, um, what they what they want, what they need, and how they like it should fly, and all that. Yeah. When I, you know, so I I haven't been in the game uh, nearly as long as you, but uh, you know, in, in in my kind of version of the paragliding history, you know, kind of like post two thousand, um, a good a good friend of mine. I'll, I'll shift gears here a little bit. A good friend of mine, Bill Belcourt. Um, when we asked him, when we were filming 500 miles to no, nowhere, we asked him, you know, like where, where are gliders going? What, what's the future of paraglide? What do they look like? And he kind of laughed and he thought, I, I just can't predict this anymore because, you know, in the pre shark nose days, you know, a hundred mile flight was a really big deal. And then, you know, shark nose came along and it just doubled, you know, just I mean, overnight we, we went twice as far, you know, and it was, it was a major breakthrough. Um, and, and, you know, and he's been in the game since the eighties. So, I mean, he's, he's seen, you know, he's seen them just improve and improve and improve. And it's just amazing, you know, two liners and the whole thing. But but really since, you know, since 2009, the improvements, the wings have, you know, they keep getting safer and they keep getting better and they keep gliding better, but they're, it's, you know, I would call it incremental, right? You know, I mean, really since yeah. knows that they've been pretty incremental improvements and, you know, you know, we're seeing the single surface stuff. And I, I just saw somebody sent me a video a couple of days ago. Uh, I don't remember the, uh, a dudek and now they have like a, like a hybrid. It's like single surface slash, you know, regular foil. Um, you know, so people are doing some kind of interesting things, but, you know, yeah. if you could, you know, if you could rub your, you know, maybe you already have something in mind and you can't say it, but what, what do you see happening with our, with our sport? Because it's, it's also this interesting double-edged sword that it's, you know, the gliders are getting better, but the safety really isn't. I mean, in other words, they're getting safer, but we're still having all the accidents because we can fly them in more wind, you know? So, yeah, you know, is there yeah. going to be... What what do you guys sit around and talk about on Friday night when you've had a couple beers and you know and and start you know imagining the 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 twenty thirty the gliders of twenty thirty? Yeah. Okay. So I, I think maybe in the future the need, uh, I, to get a leap, leaping performance um, the way I see it will be new materials maybe mm. um, invention invention of new materials. Like that, that big, the big leaping performance uh, uh, from the the two liners, uh, I think was due to uh, less drag, right? Um, yeah. And and the way the, the way you can fly a two liner, also, in, uh, it was a it was a double winner there. Um, and and yeah, maybe the performance from now on onwards would be incremental little little things that can make a difference, maybe in climb. Maybe some someone can come up with solutions in climb because if you climb with eagles, they all climb us all the time, right? So mm. maybe there's a there's there's um, there's a an area that people can explore and make make the gliders to climb better than than what they are. You know, climb like the eagles. I don't know. I'll imagine one day we all climb eagles. I don't know if it's possible or not. <laughs> yeah, that would be exciting. Uh, yeah, so that's why that's why I start playing with uh, airfoil thickness because I believe that we could maybe make a glider that could um, climb better, um, and that's 
that's that's that's that's the feedback we we get from the people flying the XC racer. They 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 think that the client the, the glider climbs really well. Uh, um, a buddy of mine just yeah. sent me literally right before we got on the phone, so I I haven't had any time to look into this. But um, do you know or have you seen RASP? This RASP technology. Yes. What do you think about yes. that? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's, it's a technology very similar to what you see in uh, foil kites. Uh, you know the Ram Air foil kites. Yeah. Uh, so the Ram Air foil kites have uh, evolved. That's almost the same, but it's on the leading edge, right there. The air, the air valves, uh, the intakes. Uh, because what you what you want to do with it is, if you drop the kite in the water, you still have a bit of air inside that you can uh, relaunch. Um, but um, the way I see, it, maybe you don't need it. You know, the glider can recover from collapses without having that uh, rest. Um, huh? Yeah, I, it was... I, 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 in my own designs, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother to put that. Okay. Uh, I think, okay. Uh, I, I don't need it because now the gliders are so collapse resistant, and then when they collapse, they recover so easily as well. Um, you know, even 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 the END gliders. Uh, they, they recover almost instantaneously if you know if you know what you're doing if you put a little bit of brake on the open open side you just boom reopens you know yeah I, I I spoke about this a little bit in the last podcast with those guys down in in Argentina uh, and I, I felt like it was probably worth exploring a little bit more but it was I was in Macedonia uh, at the end of August at that Nordic Open and they they just had this really tragic accident that you know you were you were there I know you know about it um, I was there yeah, yeah. and uh, with the midair and and Goran the uh, the meat director was really stressing you know. Um, how to behave, how to fly in a gaggle, you know, as you know, in this comp right after that terrible accident. And, and he also brought up, which was great. I really liked that he emphasized that because I think it's often unemphasized and it's a point in the race where people are stressed and they're flying too aggressively and it just doesn't, you know, you just don't need to jockey that hard at that time. So, mm. so it was, it was great that he was putting, he was saying that, especially in a comp that's not a world cup, you know, when you got people on different rated gliders and, you know, different climb rates and the whole thing. But, um, but I, he, he, he made a point of, you know, back in the day and by, by saying, you know, by back in the day, you know, when the, when these first, when the first, you know, kind of shark nose gliders came out and there was, you know, the accidents in Peter Heaton and stuff. I mean, the, the blowups were, were pretty extreme because the glide speeds were so high and, and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and you're right. You just don't see it anymore. You, know, you just don't see yeah. gliders blowing up. You know, it's, it, we really have to kind of switch, uh, you know, adjust to where we have to pay attention to things, I think. Uh, yeah, good point. That that's a good point because I used to go to competitions like PWCs, for example. There were there were competitions that would have one or two reserve deployments a day. Now now we go to competitions and we don't see reserve deployments anymore. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's much more rare, which is great. I mean. Yeah. yeah, you still see them, but it's it's often not because of that, you know, because people it, going into bad places or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not exactly. it, you don't yeah. see as much the full bar going into goal and just exploding. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Which is great. yeah. So what 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 do you think as as a pilot, uh, like not having your um, 
you know, a designer point of view, what do you think about rest? Do you think it's uh, something necessary for a glider oh, to have? I, or? Literally, I, I, I mean, I, I was being very literal there. He sent me a little Facebook thing as I was calling you. And so there was a video, I had never even heard of it. Um, I, I'm very familiar with what you're talking about with foil kites because I mean, my, back sur- yeah. my, my background in kite surfing. Um, but, you know, he showed me a video. It was, uh, it was just a girl kind of cruising along a cliff and she had a really super benign frontal, but I mean, you know, most of the glider went, um, and it didn't look like she had to do anything and it just kind of popped mm. back open. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, it was just an eight yeah. second video. So I hadn't, you know, I can't tell what, you know, but it was kind of my, my thought, he sent me the video and he said, what do you think of this? And I thought, wow, that's a really nice recovery. It is beautiful. <laughs> um, and yeah, yeah. the wing yeah. had that in it, I guess. And so I guess it's, I, what he said was that it was, you know, they're meant to still frontal, but you know, like, like you said, your analogy was perfect with the foil kites, but it just kind of blocks it at that point. Yeah. And then it just pop, it just pops back open. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I do, I just, I was curious from your, your side of things, what you, what you thought of that. Cause it was, you know, I'm yeah, maybe, maybe for, for beginner gliders. Yeah. yeah. Maybe for ENA gliders or big gliders, that could be interesting it, to use it yeah, yeah it could be interesting and I, I think also too that um you know I, I know because you know you're making gliders for the full range you're flying you know three liners but i i don't i don't i fly two liners and so um you know i, I i'm pretty out of touch with that side of things you know when i do I've been flying yeah. the climber quite a bit the last year and a half for bivy and stuff. And it's a three liner. And you know, the, the first thing I noticed when I got on, it was like, wow, I'm it frontals. <laughs> like I just yeah, had, you know, you don't experience that yeah. on two liners anymore. You know, at least if you're not, if you're not, I always think, you know, if you do, if you're not flying well, but you know, if you're, if you're yeah, on it, yeah. you shouldn't have a frontal. And so it's, you know, that it's, exactly. so that might be a really yeah. good thing to put into like B gliders because it's uh you know, they're, they're mm. way more prone to frontaling to begin with, but also it's, you know, if you can make them more benign, then you have less chance of, of, of uh, you know, a pilot overmanaging it, which is yeah. what they usually do at that level. You know, they're just yeah, so way it's, too it's, hands it's on. It's interesting. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah. So it's interesting you saying that the, 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 you know, the, the sea gliders or the big gliders, they, 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 they prone to frontal easier than the two liners. We actually, we can, we actually can design a gliders or B gliders or C gliders. They are, uh, as collapse resistant really? as a two line, wow. but it's just due to the fact of how certification is um, is that we can't. We have to make, um, yeah, especially you. for the sea glider. Um, um, yeah, I had this beautiful sea glider um, that I had to change just to, to fit in certification to make the leading edge a little a little bit softer, um, um, and. Yeah, it's, it's, which is a shame. You know, we should um, uh, look into how the certification is because uh, it doesn't really reflect. Um, uh, you know, it's restricting designers to design gliders which are safer. Um, yeah, so interesting. So that well, that that. So that, that, that's a great next question. So I, you know, the, there was, there was a lot of hubbub about the CCC class, but you know, from at least from my perspective, it seems like it's kind of working because, you know, there's companies like yours back in the game and that's, that's what it was designed to do is to, you know, allow RFC gliders in world cups. And, you know, it seemed like, you know, I mean, in other words, it see, it seems like it's in, it's getting companies back into it. So just, just on that, 
you know, on that level alone, it seems like it's kind of working, but if you could, you know, if you could wave your magic wand about certification, what would you change? I would, uh, I would, uh, one thing, one simple, uh, solution. I would allow, I would allow, I would make it certification. So we can allow to use collapse lines in C class, C class gliders or B class gliders. Um, so you can mimic the collapses in real life. Um, because the way, the way it is, if you want to design a, a, a glider, the same way you design a two liner on a, on a, on a C class glider, on a B class glider, the, the there will be too much load on the A-lines. It will be really hard to pull a collapse. And when you pull the collapse, the collapse is really, it's really, really because you pull it, the pull, it doesn't collapse as a collapse. And then the collapse is too drastic. It's too wow. much. And then the recovery is like, uh, it doesn't fit into the certification standards. Oh, okay. um, yeah. And it's a fail. And sometimes they can't even collapse. Um, if you go full bar and you, and you pull you're trying to pull a full frontal, the glider doesn't want to collapse unless you, unless you have uh, collapsed lines that will pull uh, from the very, uh, uh, you know, front of the leading edge. Um, and, let, and, let, let's that, just that, let's clarify what, there because that, I think I think a lot of listeners will, will have lost you. You're talking about the little lines that you see on two liners that you literally tie lines to in testing so you can actually get it to go. Yes, right. because if you look at a two-liner, um, the A lines, where the A lines are anchored on the on the glider, they 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 not really they're not close to the leading edge. They are further back, mm-hmm. um, but also um, how how you place your center of mass, your center of gravity, or your toe point. In relation to your to your canopy, so you distributing the load of the lines more on the A lines. There's more. The A lines are bearing most of the load of the pilot. So those there's a lot of tension on the A lines there, and the the glider is super solid. That's why you can push a lot of bar on on, on the D glider or the triple C gliders, and the glider doesn't collapse. Um, and you have this awesome feedback from the bee, which is kind of soft in a way. Um, and you can kind of design a glider uh, which will resemble that kind of feeling on the C on the C class or on the B class. But we can't because uh, if you do that, we won't be able to pull the same collapses they are required for certification, mm. unless we t- change the certification. Interesting. Yeah. Well. Good luck with that one. Yeah. yeah anyway we can dream right we can dream yeah you know but uh you can still design beautiful gliders uh to 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 fit certification these days and uh, that's okay we can get uh get our head around it and yeah make make beautiful gliders still Hmm. yeah um (laughs) what one more question and then I want to get, and then I want to ask you one final one about, uh, you know, bringing you way back to the very, very beginning, but what gives you hope as a designer and, you know, kind of a fledgling, you know, still, I mean, I know you've been at it for a few years now, but you're, you're still, you know, small and growing and, you know, um, hoping it's all going to go, go great for you. But what, what gives you hope when you look at paragliding as a, as a sport, as an endeavor, as an adventure, because the, the statistics don't look 
great for you guys, you know, in terms of just the growth of the sport and, um, you know, the age, uh, the lack of young people getting into it. And, you know, I might be a little yeah. skewed here cause I'm looking at the U S but I think you guys are pretty similar in Australia. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Small. What do you, what do you guys think about that? I mean, you know, as it, you know, as a, as a person who's written a few business plans, that's always something that <laughs> that goes into the beginning, you know, this is a high growth sport. Well, that's not really the case. Yeah, that's interesting you're talking because I really uh, like just uh, recently we've been uh, chatting about uh, in our uh, Australian squad uh, uh, discussion group about how can we broadcast the competition. Mm. Um, so imagine if you can broadcast the competition and offer that to TV channels or to make it uh, so the, the broad the broad public can watch. Uh, so we'll be talking about using drones um uh, some sort of drone so i think maybe that's uh, maybe that's the future and then become will then become more attractive to companies or tv channels to bring to give us more exposure and then attract more people that way um that would be amazing wouldn't it? like imagine if you have uh, some uh, you know drones following us and broadcasting live a, a competition that yeah. would have been amazing that watch. would be cool i i just noticed you know a lot of the new kind of pov action cameras like Gar- garmin's new verb you know which is basically the same the same package as a in, in a, as a gopro you know they're they're very similar size and weight um you know you can just broadcast to youtube or facebook you know as you're flying you know so if you i mean imagine if you had yeah. if you wow. had 20 pilots uh in a comp that were doing that i mean it'd be better if it was running through some kind of a you know some amazing editor who could actually you know uh so it wouldn't just be all that'd be chaos to yeah. watch 20 people's <laughs> head cams but yeah. if you could but you yeah. know if you could edit it you know if you could take that stuff and, and edit it um you know that would be yeah. that'd be that'd be pretty insane and the, i yeah. i went live very briefly in the, in the last x alps i was you know amazing day i wouldn't normally do this in that race but you know i was i was flying literally right over the gloss glockner you know very famous big mountain in the yeah, alps I know and that uh, going from the south to the north going up to the Ashout turn point it was just on you know i mean the it, yeah, the, it was a perfect day and the cloud base was high and the days had been really terrible. So I was, I was pretty excited and, uh, you know, and yeah. I was kind of looking down at my instruments and there's this beautiful cloud street out in front of me and, uh, and, uh, some, something, somebody pinged me and, uh, and I just went, I went on Facebook and just turned it on the live thing for like, I don't know, it was a few minutes and man, it was so exciting. Cause you know, at first there's a few people and then there's just, you can see the numbers, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and people commenting and, you know, and I wasn't yeah, typing, amazing. I could just say stuff and they could hear me, you know? And wow. so then I, be yeah, yeah. like, where are you? Oh, I'm flying over the glass guy. You know, it was, <laughs> it was really cool. I mean, so you're right. I mean, I yeah. think that that's always been the hope of the, the, the film stuff I've been doing is just like a, you know, I, I think very few people understand really what we're doing and, you know, if, if yeah. they could, then yeah. it would be, it's, not, it's pretty yeah. exciting, but if you if you can show to people what we do, I think more people will be interested to what you know be be tempted to give it a go. Yeah, yeah, you got yeah. It's it's always hard to break over that you know the safety side of things. Yeah, too. you know, there's just and, there's and still then, too many um, accidents. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but you, you know, um, you know, the Dave Snowden and he's been deeply involved with the um, 
with the Olympic side of things, uh, yep. the paraglider Olympic side of things. And his big hope is that uh, one day paragliding becomes an Olympic sport. Yeah, and he truly believes that uh, it's possible, you know, um, the next Olympic Games after Japan, I think it's in, in France. And he said, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, Tennessee would be a perfect venue oh, man. can you imagine <laughs> yeah. holy cow that'd be oh. yeah, that'd be so exciting yeah that'd, that'd, be, yeah. that'd be terrific yeah. well hey i mm. i want to be philippe i want to be mindful of your time it's super fascinating talk uh you mentioned something right in the very beginning we could either go back to that you mentioned you got hurt pretty bad or you had an accident or something in hang gliding uh, feel free to share that one if you want if you think it'd be instructive otherwise if you know if it's just one another accident story that's dismal we don't have to go there but um i do want to rewind to your kind of one of the questions i love asking is you know if you could go back to your 50 hour self what would you change and i, I think that's really relevant with you because if i've got my my timeline correct when you were 50 hours you were flying patu and tasima which is just mind-boggling to me that that's that's insane so uh i'd love to i'd love to just take everybody back there briefly um you know it's hard for folks that haven't been there to understand it but it'd be i'd, I'd love to get your viewpoint because you must have learned some pretty hard lessons right in the beginning if that's where you were learning yeah i think i think the biggest lesson was um not to um uh, to step up to a new glider too soon. That's what happened to me in hang gliding. I uh, stepped up to a two line, uh, to a, a double surface hang glider too soon and never felt really in control. Um, and I crashed because of that. Mm. Uh, in paragliding, I had a completely different approach. Uh, it took me a long time from uh, to jump from an A glider to a B, gl- B, B glider. Um, uh, yeah, so don't, don't rush um, you know, natural progression, wait for your time. And when you see that's right, step up to a, to a new class. You can still have fun on the big, on big, on big ladder. Yeah. And, um, you don't really need to get a, a high, high end ladder to, to fly 200 kilometers. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's, that's, that's great advice. One we hear a lot. And I think, I think people often make that jump too early. You know, it was, uh, my best story about that was, uh, last year at the Monarca, which is getting close. It's coming up in January. I'm pretty excited about that. But, um, Marco beat everybody on a sea, you know, he was flying the queen and, uh, yeah. And, you know, and, cause it's, you know, Vaya can be pretty rough and the conversions can be really strong. And, uh, you know, those of us that were flying CCC gliders just couldn't stay on bar <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, and he just would drill right past us on final glide, you know, day after day. And like, mm. <laughs> That's classic. I mean, he's a great yeah. pilot, you know, I mean, so I, I got to give him credit yeah. there, but. He's a fantastic yeah. pilot, but you know that's got to that feels really good when you're standing on the podium at the end and you're on a C, you know. Wow, so you can yeah. absolutely Get, do it. Getting all the triple C, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, pretty wow. cool, pretty cool. But <laughs> well, Philippe, thanks so much, man. I I, I wish you and your company uh, the most success. Uh, it's fantastic. It was great flying with you last year. I hope we get to do that again here soon. Uh, good luck with the upcoming comps and your uh, release of the C and the CCC glider. I'm sure everybody's excited about that and uh yeah man thanks a lot i appreciate your time thank you so much gab thanks for your time thank you
I hope you enjoyed that. A lot to learn there. That was a pretty fun conversation. If you're getting something out of the cloud-based mayhem, I uh, ask that you treat it kind of like a magazine subscription or something that you value. Uh, I have talked about this many times in the past. We're not funding this through advertising because I think that that's a contract that I want to avoid and it takes away from a lot of the authenticity and it's just annoying listening to ads at the top of the show. I know how that's mostly that's how podcasts do it, but uh, advertising is not free. There's a there's a, a a side there that I don't really agree with and I think there's just a lot in advertising. You know, look at Facebook and all these others that are uh, there's, there's a cost there. We don't need to totally get into it, but um, but only contribute if you can, you know, and if it's not pinching into any other parts of your life, uh, because there are many other ways you can support it. You can certainly support it financially. You can do that through cloudbasedmayhem.com. You'll see the links to do that there. We now accept crypto, which is kind of cool, uh, but you can do a one-time support through PayPal, or uh, you can become a subscriber through Patreon and be rewarded for doing so. You'll find those links, again, on the website. But you can also do many other things that are not financial. You can share it with your friends. You can blog about it. You can post it on social media. You can share it when I put it out there. Um, You can talk about it on the way up to launch. Um, What this is all about is just sharing the love, sharing the stories, trying to make us all safer, better pilots. And I hope that uh, it does that for you. See you on the next show. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 